You are listening to Energy 360. I'm your host, Edward Chow, Senior Fellow with the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. This week, we will be discussing the growing geopolitical importance of the Arctic, focusing on China's special interests in the region, recent enhanced Sino-Russian cooperation, and the next possible steps for the United States and other Arctic Council members to address these developments. I'm joined today by my fellow CSIS colleagues, Heather Conley, the Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic, and also Director of the Europe Program, and Jane Nakano, Senior Fellow with the CSIS Energy and National Security Program. Thank you for joining me today, Heather and Jane. Great to be with you, Ed. Thank you. Um, what is the significance of the Arctic? Um, I know, Heather, you've studied this a lot uh, recently, but uh, from an economic and strategic perspective, maybe we'll start with you first, and Jane can chime in on the um, economic and especially uh, energy significance of the Arctic. Well, Ed, thank you. Uh, I, number one, I'm so glad we're talking about the Arctic. Uh, it is a new ocean that is really opening up to us. And that has strategic uh, implications. It has economic uh, implications and, of course, military implications. But why we have a new ocean is because uh, the Arctic is rapidly transforming due to climate change. Not only changes to the polar ice cap and the the extent and the depth of sea ice, but we are also witnessing a rapidly disappearing um, Icelandic ice sheet, and that, of course, has implications for global sea level rise. Scientists are straining to understand uh, what all these changes mean, particularly for uh, global weather patterns. Um, There's no consensus, but we do have a a growing body of evidence to suggest that the diminishment of the polar ice cap um, is, is doing some very strange things to our jet stream, to currents in the North Atlantic. It's certainly changing uh, ocean acidification. Uh, we are seeing rapid coastal erosion, permafrost thaw, uh, which is changing the uh, traditional ha- uh, habits of subsistence hunting and gathering. Um, and, of course, with this new ocean, there are new challenges. So we have to make sure we have adequate search and rescue as more shipping activity uh, and and. and Jane will talk about the energy dimension of it. We have more tourists, more, more human activity. Um, and, of course, we're seeing where um, uh, Arctic states, which, of course, have a natural interest and natural right and international law to, to develop uh, the Arctic, now we're seeing a huge growth of non-Arctic states that are involved in the science and understanding uh, the, the climate impacts of a rapidly changing Arctic They want to enjoy the economic benefits. And now we're starting to see a growing security posture that we haven't seen for the last decade or so. So all of these issues come up uh, in the Arctic. I would like to uh, just remind uh, the Americans listening on the podcast that the United States is an Arctic nation. We don't think of ourselves that way uh, by way of Alaska. Um, And we have a very important role to play in how this new ocean develops in the future. You talk mostly about threats um, um, that 
that um, climate change in particular is causing to the Arctic region. Is there international governance forum to discuss these issues and to foundations to come together to figure out ways of resolving and, and mitigating the, the, these threats? Absolutely. So we have a, a, a wealth of, of international law uh, that helps us navigate this new ocean, which is, of course, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And that gives us a, a, a wonderful uh, set of governance patterns for Arctic coastal states, for the five states, but also for activities in the exclusive economic zones and then for uh, potential to extend uh, a coastal state's outer continental shelf, uh, seabed mining, uh, you know, biodiversity beyond national jurisdictions. It's just a wealth of governance. We have institutions like the International Maritime Organization, the IMO, that helps us with all the shipping and, and, and so safety and rescue at sea and, and pollution issues. And then, of course, we have uh, an intergovernmental body uh, called the Arctic Council, which was created in 1996. It brings together the five coastal states. And I'll just, again, remind everyone uh, those five coastal states, Russia, Norway, Denmark via Greenland, uh, Canada, and, of course, the United States. And so those five are joined by uh, Iceland, Sweden, and Finland that don't have coastlines but, of course, are very close uh, uh, to the uh, Arctic. And then uh, those eight countries, and this is where the Arctic Council is quite unique, uh, there is a seat at the table for the so-called permanent participants, and those are the indigenous communities uh, that live in the Arctic. It's really important for people to understand that over 4 million people live in the Arctic. I think sometimes people get a little confused that they think of Antarctica, there's no one there. No, this is a thriving, there are urban areas in the Arctic, uh, there's infrastructure, there's, you know, countries depend on the economic growth. Uh, and uh, so so that body has been focusing on environmental protection and sustainable economic development, and it's uh, you know it's been working well, uh, quite frankly. But um, it seems to me it's it's becoming a bit uh, wobbly over the last couple of years, both because more countries want to be part of the Arctic and be a participant. And we're now starting to see a creeping geopolitical dimension in the Arctic that certainly wasn't there the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, Jane, uh, Heather mainly talked about the challenges um, the, the Arctic region, particularly with climate change, poses. Are there also opportunities that the Arctic presents um, and, and focusing especially, I suppose, on energy but not only? Sure. Um, you know, Arctic is considered to have a vast uh, wealth of uh, energy and natural resources. So let me start with energy side first. Um, you know, the data that I usually uh, go uh, by is the, the estimates from the National Petroleum Council that uh, that was a study issued in 2015. But they uh, believe that uh, there's estimated existing reserve base of 38 billion barrels of crude oil and uh, natural gas liquids. Uh, and also 920 uh, trillion cubic feet of natural gas. Uh, that you know, it's a huge uh, uh, reserve uh, level. So, um, but you know, certainly the the environment uh, that uh, that's there, uh, the remoteness, also the the, the climate that um, 
these you know resources are uh, uh, exist have always made it very challenging for um, commercial entities to go in uh, and explore and develop the resources. But as Heather has mentioned, uh, that the climate change is uh, changing the environment in that uh, there are um, or more days where uh, the ice coverage uh, is, is much milder, allows uh, human activities, economic activities like uh, oil gas exploration to be able to take place. It's enhancing uh, interest in that way. But then also uh, the shipping lanes are developing. Uh, there are northwest and northeast passages uh, that have been uh, um, tested and, and there have been some vessels that have been trans. Uh, been traveling through those passages, uh, the, you know, there's a lot of uh, excitement around that, how uh, the new passages can uh, shorten the amount of time that um, uh, commodities can be transported from uh, one region to another around the, uh, around the world. So there is a lot of excitement. Uh, so Russian liquefied natural gas to Asian markets would be an example. Yes, yeah. I mean, Yamal LNG is the perfect example. Um, their ice-breaking LNG carrier can operate on the northern sea route. Um, you know, LNG from Yamal can travel westbound, uh, westward to reach Europe throughout the year. And now with the uh, ice-breaking LNG carrier, Yamal LNG can also reach uh, Asia-Pacific through the uh, eastern route, uh, in, especially in summer months. So um, you know, makes the deliveries to Asia-Pacific markets, where the demands are uh, growing, uh, much uh, you know, uh, uh, faster and also less expensive than otherwise. But this is just the beginning. Uh, Yamal LNG came online uh, just last December. So, um, you know, I think we sort of have to wait and see to see how much of uh, Yamal LNG can directly travel to Asia Pacific. But then, uh, if you will, sort of taking advantage of the milder climate uh, uh, and environment that's been made available or possible by the climate change. Um, so uh, we will uh, find out um, at least, you know, for this uh, for the full year um, from last last December, how many cargos can go? Um, well, even though there is a set of unknowns, but I think Yamaha LNG is a big uh, development and uh, rather exciting development as it hints at future expansion in commercial opportunities using Northern Sea Route. So um, we will find out more. Ed, if I can just jump in really quickly, I think there's there's some really important points, uh, what, what Jane just said. Most of the believed to be oil and gas deposits are within the exclusive economic zones of the coastal states. So you sometimes see these crazy headlines, you know, oh my goodness, this clash and this race for resources. They are in uh, what we believe to be in the EEZs. And that means it's very defined. Again, international law defines that. Um, but I will say the caveat, uh, the 2008 U.S. Geological Survey really had you know extraordinary numbers, the National Petroleum Council study as well. But I will have to tell you what we have seen so far is early uh, discoveries have not 
panned out. Uh, they haven't found necessarily what they thought. Um, and I think this is where the market really, in 2008, um, of course, with the global recession, and then again, when, when commodity prices dropped and energy prices dropped, there was just a cooling off of, of this. Now, the exploration still goes on. Russia, you're absolutely right. This is their future resource base. Uh, and you have to understand it's of vital importance to their future. They're putting so much into it, which is the, the crown jewel is the Yamal uh, LNG project. Um, but we're not seeing – even the Norwegians are getting some interesting results, even in the high Barents Sea. So as I said, I, I think we're learning a lot. Uh, so expectations versus what the market is telling us and signaling and then what they're actually discovering, it's, it's an interesting it, it nuance. It certainly is early days, early days. In, in terms of the exploration phase of, right. of what might be a vast resource. Uh, the other question, I guess, is the economics that you pointed out. Uh, a couple years ago, when oil prices dropped below $30, it seemed like Arctic oil was out of the money altogether. Now we've got oil prices at the high 60s, low 70s, and the the natural human expectations that if it's this high now, maybe it'll go even higher in the future, and these projects will take time, right. uh, maybe you know, five, 10 years at a minimum before um, resources can be developed uh, in, in a proper way. Uh, so has that interest um, been reviving uh, a bit? Um, have you seen signs uh, one way or the other? As uh, Heather, you mentioned, for Russia, you know, you work with what you've got. And, and, and what you've got uh, are the Arctic offshore, so you have to find out uh, what's there. But the economic efficacy of these projects had yet to be proven. Am I correct? Uh, you're absolutely correct. I think for the American Arctic, so this is Chucky Beaufort potentially, um, as well as onshore. And, and I think, you know, obviously we have decades of experience in Arctic uh, energy exploration. I think, again, this is not new. Uh, there is great expertise to do this. Um, the real test will be the, the Trump administration reopened uh, uh, both onshore Alaska and offshore leases. I think we'll have to see what the risk appetite is. But you're absolutely right. The production arc here is incredibly long. And look, Shell had a really these are my words, bad uh, experience. Uh, seven years, seven billion dollars, uh, multiple years, and walked away with nothing. That leaves a strong impression. So I think this will be very slow. But um, one thing I want to highlight, and this is what we need to study much more. When we think about this and when we talk about it, we are using market-based understanding. The two actors right now that are driving Arctic energy development are state-driven economic development models, Russia and China. They are not inhibited by if it's at $60 or if it's $30, if it's their national mission to do this, they're going to make that decision. And this is what we are now coming. The Arctic is going to be the perfect picture of these two models. Who's right? Do we let the market determine this? or if a state-driven model is going to be the, the, the way forward, the Arctic's going to tell us how this works. So I, we, we always think through a market lens. That's how we're trained to do it. I'm starting to suggest we need to stop doing that and think through both lenses because right now we're test modeling both routes. That's very interesting. Jane? 
So as Heather said, market signals are key to what may happen in the U.S. Arctic. Uh, the Trump administration is opening up the Arctic for oil and gas uh, drilling opportunities uh, now. And for the onshore side, uh, the administration just launched leasing review for drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, otherwise known as, known as ANWAR. So this process came after uh, nearly four decades of intense debate on what may happen if you open up the area for uh, commercial uh, exploration and, and development. And this process involved a lot of stakeholders, including environmental uh, community uh, members, oil industry, uh, Alaska natives, and also uh, state political leaders. Uh, so uh, this is a sort of unfolding story, and uh, we will see how you know what may happen. But then there is also a development on the offshore side. The uh, Department of Interior uh, under the Trump administration. Uh, gave a proposal for Outer Continental Shelf Leasing Program for um, from 2019 to 2024, and that included Arctic offshore. So now, um, you know, what's happening is, you know, uh, the DOI, the Interior Department, is asking companies to nominate areas for leasing. So now we, you know, again, see onshore and offshore side uh, uh, potential for uh, robust U.S. Uh, activities, but you know, do companies see these steps as you know something you know that may lead to viable commercial um, activities? I don't know. I mean, we shall see. You know, what sort of a business appetite uh, may be there uh, once we have more um, uh, inputs uh, from the the uh, businesses into this uh, the process, but. It's certainly uh, uh, time that uh, um, that merits uh, quite close attention uh, as to how the U.S. Arctic energy side of uh, future may look like. So the rubber is going to meet the road actually in Alaska because um, as as the Department of Interior and the U.S. government and the state of Alaska contemplates what future U.S. energy development, you have China and the provisional signing of agreements with Chinese investment for Alaskan LNG whose model is going to work here. And so, uh, as I, I jokingly like to say, look, friends, Belt and Road is coming to the United States via Alaska with the Chinese Polar Silk Road. So it's a really extraordinary I'm development. I'm starting to ask the question of what parts of the world Belt and Road doesn't cover. Well, uh, I, I see a full <laughs> circle yes. around the uh, Russian Federation, I must say. <laughs> um, Heather, you've, you've already brought up China a couple of times. I, I guess... I'm not used to thinking of China as an Arctic nation. Um, and, and you were in China not too long ago and, and, and had discussions with Chinese colleagues as well as international colleagues uh, at a conference, I believe, that was held in, in outside of Shanghai. Um, and you've also written recently about the subject. What's driving Chinese interests in the Arctic region, which is relatively new, um, uh, and uh, what are the motivations, you think? So it, it goes back sort of the origins, you know, and I get this question a lot. Wait, China in the Arctic? What? And so, yes, uh, it's not new. It's just been the last several years it's intensified. So really go, going back to what is China's um, international framework for being in the Arctic? First and foremost, it's a signatory to the Treaty of Svalbard, um, which is a 
you know, a 1920 treaty uh, or an archipelago uh, in, in the Arctic. Uh, Norway has uh, Which predates authority. the People's Ex- Republic. Absolutely, but um, uh, they joined mm-hmm. it. And so that gives them the right to economically develop as well as put a science station. So since 2004, China's had a research station on Svalbard. Um, and they have been a participant in the international scientific dynamics uh, surrounding the Arctic. They have their icebreaker. They're building their second icebreaker. They've done at least eight Arctic expeditions over the last several years. Um, and so that, it really grows from science. And their view is uh, they believe that mid-latitude countries like China are deeply impacted, both by potentially climate impacts from the shrinking of the polar ice cap, but of course, uh, global sea rise. Um, so they look, we're impacted by this. Um, and we have a, a role to play in the international scientific understanding of the Arctic. But we also, uh, I think China believes that they have an, uh, a role to play in the economic development of the Arctic. And um, so what we've been seeing is a growing economic and commercial diplomacy across the Arctic. Uh, in some ways, this began uh, when they became a, an observer uh, to the Arctic Council in 2013. They were one of six countries, including Japan, South Korea, Singapore, India, and Italy. Uh, and uh, that was really, for me, that was a, a real moment for the Arctic and the Arctic Council, because suddenly this entity that was really the regional actors were going to determine how this was going to work out, um, that sort of ex- explosion of bringing very big and powerful non-Arctic states to the equation, to me, changed the dynamics completely. So now China could be involved in some of the the six working groups of the Arctic Council. They were becoming more familiar with that institute. Meanwhile, we're seeing their activity in the International Maritime Organization and different UN entities. Uh, They were in 2009, they signed their first free trade agreement uh, with a European country, with Iceland, a non-EU member state. Their uh, commercial activity grew grew in Iceland. Then their commercial activity and mining activity grew in Iceland. Now we're starting to see uh, a pretty rich economic activity and uh, and diplomacy across the five Nordic countries. Um, And now, of course, in Russia, where there's joining of the Yamal LNG project. So they're there through science and economics. They believe, because international law says that, you know, high seas, international waters, there are equal rights for uh, states to join. And what China, I believe, is trying to do is position itself that it will not, it will be at the table when big decisions are made about the future of the Arctic and its economic uh, dynamics. What it doesn't want to, to happen is that China is precluded from someday enjoying the shipping through the uh, across the Arctic, potentially fisheries, the protein in the Arctic, and of course, they're very eager infrastructure development, energy development, mineral development, rare earths, um, iron ore, nickel. They're very interested in the mining rights as well. So it's really a it's a long term strategic vision that I think many many underappreciate in major capitals. So just to summarize, it extends beyond shipping, really, to resource development. Oh, absolutely. 
I, I think it's really across the board. Uh, the Chinese are very interested in laying an undersea uh, cable that goes from Finland to China. Again, the Arctic, thinking about the Arctic, it's all about That's shortening. That's a very long belt. It is a long. But it's all about shortening distances. That's why the Arctic is so important. That's why it's so strategically important for military purposes. Um, that's why our missile defense architecture, you you get anywhere quicker across the Arctic. Anyone who's, you know, traveled uh, from North America to Asia, you've gone the polar routes. It's shorter. It's about making things shorter. So they're interested in the energy. They're interested in the mineral resources. They're interested in the protein, in the fishing, in the infrastructure development. It's a full spectrum. And, and how do you think Russia views China's interests in the Arctic? Do they see this as a, a, a good partnership for them, or this is, do they see this as a potential threat down the road, since in some ways they are the ones with the most to protect? Right, right. Well, absolutely, dividing those two up. Short term, they were absolutely the, the partner that was required when the U.S. and the European Union placed sanctions on Russia in 2014 after the annexation of Crimea and the incursions into the Donbass region. Uh, those sanctions were targeted towards Russia's Arctic energy development. Uh, long-term financing, which is absolutely critical, uh, as well as technology. And so that forced Russia, because nothing is going to stop it from developing the Arctic, uh, it had to swing to China for both technology and that financing, which allowed China to get very, uh, I think, very concessionary, highly concessionary uh, rights, uh, particularly for the Yamal LNG project. But China is not just invested in the energy. They're doing uh, help developing the port of Sabeta, which is the, the main port for um, the Yamal LNG project, um, you know, uh, constructing LNG carriers that are ice-strengthened. Um, you know, it's the whole complement. And so this, this sort of short-term marriage of convenience is now, I think, turning into a long-term arrangement. But you're right, over time, this is my view, and I think there's an understanding deep within a Russian strategic framework that they understand the long term is not good here. Because uh, what China is doing is eventually, I think they see Russia as uh, the supplier of their energy, minerals, and and their agricultural space, to be quite honest with you, that will be for strengthening China over the long term. And you see, this is my joke about this, sort of the encirclement of Russia, Belt and Road through Central Asia. You see it going then through the Mediterranean. 16 plus 1, which is getting into the Western Balkans and Central Europe, which is traditional Russian economic uh, energy and infrastructure development. And now you see the arc above them uh, with the Polar Silk Road. And, of course, we know how much China has, is engaged in the Russian Far East as far as population, uh, economic ties. So here's the irony. I know President Putin continues to speak about Western encirclement. It's not Western encirclement. It's Chinese economic encirclement around Russia. That should be their long-term concern. But uh, right now, their short-term imperatives just overwhelm what should be and what I think the United States should be reminding them of is the long-term looks really interesting. I, I keep seeing Russia being squeezed by China economically, and that's where the encirclement is. 
You know, I really enjoyed um, Heather's comment about, you know, what Russia and China get from one another in this, you know, the Arctic yeah, relationship. And I just wanted to emphasize how, certainly in the sort of short-term area, um, how much the Chinese funding meant for the Russians as they tried to develop Arctic, uh, the LNG, uh, Yamal LNG project. And as Heather said, there was the sanctions element, but certainly, you know, oil prices were quite low as the, the Russians are trying to, or starting, well, there was a bit of uncertainty uh, as they're starting to take it to the, the finish line. And, but I think China's importance there is not just as sort of a you know funder or you know or funding source, but then also a growing market for LNG. You know, last year China's uh, LNG import jumped by fifty percent. Uh, they imported thirty-eight uh, million tons uh, of LNG and ma- made them the second largest global LNG importer in the world. So. I guess there, it's also a market to the Russians. Uh, so, you know, certainly there's this long-term offtake arrangement out of the Yamal LNG, but overall, there, you know, China will continue to be an important market, and perhaps increasingly so as some of the energy uh, trade relationship with uh, uh, mature European economies, you know, may, uh, may start to look to Moscow as you know, sort of a singularly satisfying uh, sort of focus of, of economic um, uh, attention, if you will. And then, of course, looking at how they're trying to uh, develop the, the second Yamal or the, I guess, Arctic 2 LNG project, uh, I think China uh, will likely to be an important partner in that. But then, you know, in the longer run, I think, you know, Moscow probably would not like to be too dependent on China. And I think that's probably uh, one of the what's driving uh, Russian interest to stay talking to potential uh, partners from India and in Saudi Arabia to perhaps diversify. Uh, that's a very good point. I, I, I would add also from the Chinese side, uh, I'm not sure all the time that China wants to put too many eggs in the Russian basket. Um, notice uh, that when the second tranche of uh, Yamal LNG equity became available, CNPC did not double its equity. It was the Chinese Development Bank that came in and, and took up that equity uh, Jane is absolutely right. On the next stage of Yamal LNG development, the Russians are talking to a lot of other people, um, in- interestingly, including Saudi Arabia uh, uh, on this. Um, the the Sinopec interest in Alaskan LNG is really quite interesting that you've got one Chinese uh, major state-owned uh, company pursuing Russian projects, and then you have a second uh, equally large Chinese state oil company looking at Alaskan LNG. So it is true that the Chinese market is growing. China has scale in a way that no one else has currently. Uh, But China also wants to diversify its interests at the same time, including in U.S. Arctic region. So so it, it, as we said earlier, it pre- pre- presents challenges, but maybe also opportunities for the United States and the importance of understanding these factors better. Uh, Jane, um, how does 
Japan, which is also a near Arctic nation, um, see the developments here? Um, is is this something that is a concern to Japan, or does it also see opportunities for itself? I think Tokyo is watching it very closely, and trying to identify what are some of the sort of inflection points, if you will. I think for one, I mean, you know, one of the unknowns is, you know, how quickly China can actually put together some, you know, uh, more resources into developing infrastructure in the Arctic region. I mean, it's supposed to be part of their Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, You know, so far, their resources are all going to the southbound. Um, and, you know, to what extent China has resources, you know, that, that could be shifted or, you know, or additional resources to be brought on to um, get into the, the northern uh, sort of a belt and road development. Um, and also, I think Tokyo is watching closely to see how, you know, how U.S., uh, will uh, respond uh, not just the pace of it, but how comprehensive is, is there going to be uh, a much more not sort of piecemeal sort of reaction to what's happening in the Arctic, but uh, uh, sort of a vision that um, includes strategic, but perhaps commercial, also energy, natural resources um, uh, answers to what's happening. But I think for now, uh, my impression is it's sort of wait and see, uh, but uh, certainly with lots of uh, um, sort of um, ears are, are you know, there, you know, trying to really um, sense uh, what may be happening in that region. Yeah, I mean, Japan has a, an Arctic uh, ambassador. They have a strategy. Um, they came into the class in 2013. You definitely see their their activism. But I, I have to say, to me, it's it feels less about the Arctic and more about making sure they are keeping an eye on China, uh, thinking so where China goes, they will be and be present there, very you know engaged scientifically, um, but and looking for those commercial opportunities as well. But you're right, they're, they're, uh, Tokyo's dynamics with Moscow, which we'll watch very closely in this upcoming uh, conversation, is very tied up in their own territorial uh, disputes, and which haven't actually gotten better um, with uh, Russia placing, uh, we believe, reports suggest surface-to-air missiles on the Northern Territory slash Kuril Islands. So there are continuing uh, tensions there. But I, I think from, from my view, uh, Tokyo's Arctic vision is really through a Beijing lens. Uh, thank you both for this great opportunity for me to segue to what the American interest is and what sh- how should America, the American government view the developments in the Arctic, particularly the, the uh, you know, growing relationship uh, between Russia and, and China and cooperation in the Arctic region? So as we've been talking the last 20 minutes, we haven't been talking about U.S. policy because it's, it's quite invisible. Um, which is strange because the U.S. was the chair of the Arctic Council um, uh, for the last uh, from 2015 to 2017, uh, and, and sort of suffered from a shift change in some ways. So the Obama administration was the build up to the the chairmanship and built the agenda. 
Um, and but the last six months of the uh, chairmanship uh, was under the Trump administration, which basically, with the new administration, it just sort of coasted on the fumes of the of the Obama administration's policy. The Obama administration built their Arctic policy on the urgency of climate change. So, as I like to say, the Arctic was the poster child for the president President Obama's vision that climate change is a national security challenge. And we better get a move on and look at this picture in the Arctic and you can tell we've got to get a move on. Um, The problem was it it was not a balanced policy message because while there absolutely the environmental issues is what is transforming this new ocean, there has to be balance in understanding the economic dynamics, understanding the military and the geostrategic. And we just didn't have that balance. Um, so the Trump administration uh, came in, obviously, which more of a focus on economics and much, much, much less focus on the climate uh, dimension of this. Uh, but, but quite frankly, that's where it ended. So after our chairmanship, we sort of brushed our hands and said, good, done with that. The reorganizational approach that the Obama administration had put in place, a U.S. uh, special representative to the Arctic. There was a new structure in the White House for coordination, which is – it's just very complex because it's a domestic – it's an internal policy because of Alaska, state and federal relationship, and it's an international issue. And and 23 separate federal agencies have some hand in this. So it's incredibly complex to to organize and to coordinate, but also, you know, what are the national imperatives? What are we trying to do? Do here, and we just sort of go back and forth between we we want to conserve and protect, and we don't want to develop, and then woo pendulum swings. Okay, we want to develop, and this is this is across the board in all of our policies. Our pendulum swings have gotten so dramatic between administrations. There can be no sustainable policy. We just undo what the last person has done. So there's total confusion now. There is I don't know what our Arctic policy is to be quite honest with you. We continue on in the Arctic Council, a little more muted level. We don't have the key personnel that are focusing on this. We don't have a policy forward. We're still investing in science, but everyone's keeping their head down (laughs) to make sure that that doesn't get stopped. But uh, the intelligence community and the the defense community starts going, whoa, whoa, Russia, why are you building 50 new airfields by 2020? Why are you putting surface-to-air missiles on that? Why are you putting special forces in the Arctic? Wait, wait, wait. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, the the modernization of Russia. Wait a minute. What Should we worry that China is going to build, um, you know, five airstrips near Thule Air Force Base in Greenland? That's at least what their proposal. Does that worry us? Uh, what about China building ports in Alaska? Does that bother us? And so you ha- we are at this moment of we know things are changing. We know our two rivals, as we um, have noted them in the national security strategy, are doing extraordinary things in the Arctic. And we're just watching. And we're not is, having a policy isn't response. Isn't that a little puzzling? It's g- extremely g- g- puzzling. G- given the significance of, of the region and the changes in the region that we just talked about, as well as the fact that um, the, the other uh, number of the Arctic nations are treaty allies of the United States, uh, Norway, Denmark, Canada. Uh, and, and so it would be, seem like an area that the United States would naturally take a lead in rather than, than to be passive. Right. And, and no. I, so our, our Danish friends going, does any of this bother you? Our Norwegian colleagues going, no, I think we should think about this. 
NATO's not engaged in it. The U.S. doesn't have a forward policy about it. Uh, we don't understand, you know, uh, over time with greater uh, presence by China and Russia in the Arctic, it may make it, it. The U.S. may be unable in the next two, three decades to have access to some areas in the Arctic. Is that a concern? What are the strategic implications? We're just not thinking about it. And, and as I said, as we started this uh, uh, conversation, wait, China's in the Arctic? Wait, what? what is Russia doing? So we're, we're seeing this and we're going, wait, what's that? But no one has the discipline and the focus to say, does this matter to the United States? What are the policy approaches? We may not have the uh, focus. You know, We're not going to develop the American Arctic as the Russians will develop theirs, but we better understand the strategic implications of us not doing it because we may be up for a very unpleasant surprise in the next 10 to 20 years when we can't access it. Jane's already suggested that Japan uh, is is watching the United States and looking for some signal from from Washington on on what uh, our posture might be. Uh, And Heather, I think you just suggested that other nations uh, friends and allies in the United States are, are doing the same. Uh, so this is certainly seems sounds to me like an issue that needs to be highlighted more in Washington and across the country. It does. I mean, what we find is, at least in the Senate Armed Services Committee, when senior defense officials um, have to testify or are being confirmed, there's always a standard question about, are you concerned about the Arctic? And you hear, yes, sir, and we are concerned. And then after that hearing's over, nothing moves, nothing moves. Or we've sort of over the last decade, we write a lot of strategies, and they're beautifully written documents, um, very detailed And then we don't allocate budgets. We don't prioritize. We don't create accountability for senior leaders to say, okay, we're going to do that. This is important. I think we are now in the process. We hope uh, everything's on board with building one heavy uh, icebreaker, which we hope could be online by 2023, maybe uh, a little later than that. Uh, That is not that is wonderful, and it's important, and I we need more. Uh, we need capabilities in the Arctic. But I think there's also a self-satisfaction of, well, we're building an icebreaker. Check the Arctic box. No, no, no. Uh, that is an important element. But uh, so it's we just have to have discipline, focus, and priorities. And these are tough budget decisions. And we need to have the strategic understanding underneath those decisions to say, this is why we're doing this. This is important. And then to have the continuity, the bipartisanship to see the plan through. Well, thank you both for informing me and our audience on this important uh, subject. I'm Ed Chow, and thanks for listening to Energy 360.